We're going to be studying King Hezekiah, one of my favorite names in the Bible, because it's one of those names that sounds like it's a Bible book. And sometimes what I would do to people is say, now turn to the book of Hezekiah. And then there'd be people who would page in the Bible. And it was just one of these sinful, fleshly things that I would do. And then I'd have to tell them, there is no book of Hezekiah. All right? Now let's turn to second opinions. And, then <laughs> and so, it, you know, it's, it's my sinful flesh. It's just, I just had to confess that. So what we're going to do is take a look at King Hezekiah today. You can see on the outline there, a lesson in obedience. Here's a good king as we've been looking at these David-like leaders, someone who's very obedient, and we're going to see him working in uh, uh, Judah to have people follow God's commands when it comes to worship in the temple. We're going to see that his dad shuts the temple down. And so he reopens it and gets the worship going again. It's things that I, to us would be unimaginable. If you can imagine grace is shut down and we don't use this building the way it was intended, and then a new pastor team comes in and says, no, let's, let's, let's worship here the way it was intended to be. So that's the focus of what you're going to see. And so there's a tremendous uh, spiritual revival going on, but he also understands he's got to protect his people. And that's one of the focuses we want to look at tonight, this idea of we live in two kingdoms, a kingdom of the left hand and the right hand. And we live in this church that we're a part of, but we're also a part of this, this state, this, this uh, country of the United States, the state of Wisconsin. And, and we've got obligations to deal with both of those. So that's our focus tonight besides King Hezekiah. Just heads up, last homework assignment, Josiah, next week, 2 Chronicles 33 to 35. Uh, we're going to end on a good note because he's this incredible king. And I think uh, if I have to pick my favorite of these uh, four, uh, we four kings, it's, it's Josiah. Because you're going to see that he's going to take the throne at the age of eight. Can you imagine? There's an eight-year-old ruling us. <laughs> and it's just incredible what this... Uh, young man does. So when you uh, take a look at that next week, it's going to be something else, but Hezekiah is tremendous, right? Let's pray, uh, and then we got some more history to take care of. We're going to go to Israel first before we go back to Judah here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time and the opportunity to fellowship around your word again. We thank you for the daylight, as uh, now we're in daylight uh, savings time, and, and uh, uh, we see a difference in uh, the sunrise and sunset times. Lord, I thank you that even as uh, this changes, uh, you don't. Lord, you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, I pray that we'd understand what you're saying to us through your word. I pray that you'd give us new insight and that we'd uh, also understand from Hezekiah what it is to be obedient. We thank you, Lord, for this time. We pray a blessing on it and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you go back to our map here, Israel, the northern kingdom, is the ten tribes that decide, well, we're not going to walk in God's ways. We're just going to do our own thing. And this is after Solomon died, and uh, King Jeroboam led them, and he was the first of, of many bad kings that didn't walk in God's ways. Judah, who was led by uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, um, he, he's taking Judah, the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in God's ways, but they got that mix of kings. We've seen out of 20 kings, eight are good, Four compared to David, that's the, study of our, that's the focus of our study. Before we get into Hezekiah, go to 2 Kings 17. Go to 2 Kings 17. We're going to take a look at what happened to Israel. What happened to Israel? And so when we started our study, we saw that these godly kings uh, back in the 900s B.C., 
Well, now it's going to be fast forwarding about 200 years, and it's a ballpark figure. You can see at the top of the sheet, 715 to 686, uh, when Hezekiah rules. And he's ruling after the fall of Israel, the destruction of Israel by the Assyrians. And so if we would extend our map out here to the east, the Assyrians are up here, and they come in, and they take these people, and they scatter them throughout their empire, and they bring other people in here. There's a few people from these tribes of Israel, the ten northern tribes left. You're going to see them in the text today. But the Assyrians wipe them out, and it's in 722 B.C. So again, just to put it in perspective, so our guys were starting around 900, and now a couple hundred years later, Israel, the ten northern tribes, are gone. Why? Remember, not one of these kings followed the covenant, the conditional covenant. So we talked about that in the first week. It wasn't an unconditional covenant. God had established unconditional covenants before. We talked about Abraham, all right? I'm going to do three things for you, Abraham. You don't have to do a thing. I'm going to make you the father of a great nation. You're going to have this land, and all nations will be blessed through you. You're going to have the Messiah eventually come through your line. So it's an unconditional covenant, it's a one-way street. Well, the two-way street conditional covenant, you see it in Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I took you from here to here. Now, this is what you're going to do. You're not going to have any other gods. You're not going to take my name in vain. You're going to remember this. And here's the Ten Commandments. Not to get saved. They've already been saved. They're doing this in covenant obedience. And if you read Deuteronomy 28, there's blessings and curses. You'll be blessed if you obey this covenant. But you'll be cursed if you don't. Now, these curses will come in different things. There'll be drought. There'll be locusts. There'll be marauding armies. And there'll be all sorts of devastation. Well, now, because Israel has repeatedly disobeyed the covenant and God has been patient for hundreds and hundreds of years, he finally puts an end to them in their stubbornness, even though there's prophets who speak and prophets who tell them to repent. Nobody listens. So God sends the Assyrians in and takes, takes them out. 2 Kings 17, start at verse 7. So the last king is Hoshea. You can read about that if you want at the beginning of the chapter. But in verse 7 it says this, All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. So notice, did you follow me? No, you worshipped other gods. You followed the practices of the Canaanites. Now, if you recall, we talked about this. They were told in Deuteronomy 7, wipe all those people out. They didn't. We look at that and go, oh my gosh, how could God do that? Well, it's judgment day, just like the flood, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. But now I'm not going to do a supernatural event. I'm going to use you as an army and wipe out those nations that were there. They didn't. And so what did the Israelites do? Well, they just adopted their worship styles, very sexual uh, uh, orientation in their worship, the orgies and the prostitutes and the like. And so these people have just gone astray, sacrificing their own children, doing human sacrifice. So God has put up with this and put up with this, and then he says, we're done. Pick up in verse 9. The Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. We talked about that. So the gods could see them better, right? They set up sacred stones and asherah poles on every high hill and under every spreading tree. 
At every high place they burn incense, supposed to be prayer, symbolic of prayer going up, as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked things that provoked the Lord to anger. They worshipped idols, though the Lord had said, you shall not do this. The Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers, turn from your evil ways, observe my commands and decrees in accordance with the entire law that I commanded your fathers to obey and that I delivered to you through my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen and were as stiff-necked as their fathers who did not trust in the Lord their God. They rejected his decrees, watch this, and the covenant he had made with their fathers and the warnings he had given them. I told you there are blessings and curses. Every seven years you need to come and hear this. You need to hear this. They're not listening. Uh, uh, they followed worthless idols and themselves became worthless. They imitated the nations around them, although the Lord had ordered them, do not do as they do. And they did the things the Lord had forbidden them to do. They forsook all the commands of the Lord their God and made for themselves two idols cast in the shape of calves and an Asherah pole. Gosh, what does that sound like? Let's do that golden calf thing again. Let's do that golden calf thing again. They bowed down to all the starry hosts, astrology worship. They worship Baal. They sacrificed their sons and daughters in the fire. They practiced divination and sorcery. They're trying to predict the future apart from seeking God's face, right? Sold themselves to do evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. So the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his presence. Only the tribe of Judah was left, and even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices Israel had introduced. So that's why when you look at the, the uh, Judah kings, there's 20 of them, again, 12 are bad. So they start adopting what the Israelites are doing uh, in, in Judah and Benjamin, or just the nation, what's called, uh, of Judah. Verse 20, Therefore the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of plunderers until he thrust them from his presence. When he tore away Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam, son of Nabat, their king. Jeroboam enticed Israel away from following the Lord and caused them to commit a great sin. He's the one who, after uh, Solomon, takes over for those ten northern tribes. The Israelites persisted in all the sins of Jeroboam and did not turn away from, from them until the Lord removed them from his presence, as he had warned through all his servants the prophets, so the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile, into Assyria, and they are still there. So it's a sobering time. Think about that. Your, your countrymen, former countrymen, have just been deported, intermarried with all these people in this Assyrian kingdom. They're, they're losing their religion, their identity, their, their cultural heritage. Other people have been brought in here. Again, there are some Jews who are here. Eventually, these Jews and Gentiles marry. They are eventually known as Samaritans. The kingdom has its capital, Samaria, and so the Samaritans are there, and that's why now in Jesus' day, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. They're not pure Jewish. They're, they're, they're these people that were brought here. They worshiped other gods. They're just, they're just not us, all right? So it's interesting how this all plays out. But what's going on? At the time, a couple years later, now Hezekiah comes on the scene. He's seen what's happened here, all right? But sadly, his dad 
is not doing the right thing. Now let's go to 2 Chronicles 28. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 28. So Hezekiah is going to pick up in 29, but let's just look at his dad. So his dad is not doing the right thing. I just want to show you some highlights out of 2 Chronicles 28, Hezekiah's dad. So 2 Chronicles 28, verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and also made cast idols for worshiping the Baals. He burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burnt incense at the high places on the hilltops and under every spreading tree. Well, terrible. Again, so what is he doing? I'm not walking in David's ways, a man after God's own heart. What am I doing? Oh, I'm following what the Israelites are doing. Wow, they got some good stuff going on up there. Now, eventually, they're going to be carted off in, in punishment, right? Back in 3, he burned sacrifices in the valley of Ben-Hinnom and sacrificed his sons in the fire. That's a valley outside of Jerusalem. The human sacrifices were going on outside the, valley of, uh, outside the city of Jerusalem, the valley of Ben-Hinnom. Later, it will become the garbage dump for Jerusalem in Jesus' day, the Valley of Hinnom. And then the word in Greek, Gehenna, from the Valley of Hinnom, is the word for hell. So when Jesus talks about hell, it's like the garbage dump outside our city. It's like a place of filth and maggots and destruction. That's what hell is like. It's like Gehenna, hell, the Valley of Hinnom. So a terrible heritage for this place, but before it was a garbage dump in Jesus' day, it was a place of human sacrifice. So look at verse 5. Therefore the Lord, his God, handed him over to the king of Aram. The Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. So he asks for help, and he seeks the help of, 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 of others, other nations, right, instead of the Lord. Jump down to verse 16. At that time, King Ahaz sent to the king of Assyria for help. The Edomites had again come and attacked Judah and carried away prisoners, while the Philistines had raided towns in the foothills in the Negev of Judah. They captured and occupied a number of places there. We're just going to skip over that. Verse 19, the Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been, uh, had been most unfaithful to the Lord. Take a look, jump down to verse 24. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings from the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods and provoke the Lord, the God of his fathers, to anger. So imagine that. Well, we're in trouble, and so we're going to give tribute gold, silver, and stuff. Maybe these kings will help us out with the political problems we're having. Do we turn to God? No. We take stuff even from God's temple so we can buy help, and we shut the temple down, and then we've got all these idle spots around town where people can, can worship, right? So that's Hezekiah's dad. Now what happens? 29 verse 1. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. Watch this. In the first month 
of the first year of his reign, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side and said, listen to me, Levites, consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of our fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem. He's made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. That is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. My sons, don't be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and to serve him, to minister before him, and to burn incense. If you look at the next passages, it's a list of names. We're not going to read through that, all right? But these are the men who serve, and they uh, get ready to open up the temple and reinstitute sacrifices and the like. Again, just some history. When God takes the Israelites out of Egypt, and then when Joshua and the boys conquer the land, they divvy up the land, and all the 12 tribes have got areas. The tribe of Levi has got uh, nothing. They don't, they don't get a, a plot, uh, an area of land, but they're going to serve in the temple, all right? So they're going to serve in the temple. They've got a house to live in, all right? But they're going to serve in the temple. So last week we had some questions. Hey, what were all those animals being sacrificed and, and what was happening to all that food, right? If you go back and read in Old Testament law, God had said, for the Israelites, you're going to bring your sacrifices. Obviously, some of it is, is for the Lord, but some of that food is going to be given to these priests, these Levites, these people who are working in the temple. They don't have a farm. They've got a house to live in, but this is a way that food is provided for them because they're serving the Lord. And then um, you, you've got an opportunity to take care of them as you're showing your devotion to the Lord. So again, just to understand that, uh, and you'll see provisions for the Levites and, and these church workers, these temple workers uh, later on here. Uh, if you take a look at the outline there, uh, number one, his call to consecrate the Levites, the priests in the temple. Uh, Exodus 29, we're not going to go there, but you can take a look at it. It talks about how they should wash things and how they should prepare if they're going to do sacrifices. And so he, he admits, my dad was not walking in God's way. Now next week when we see Josiah, the last one, we're going to see that his dad and his grandfather did not walk in God's ways. And his grandfather was the worst king of all. So the idea of, well, what happens when you don't have godly people in your family? God can still move in a person's life and change that person and, and make them to, to do incredible things for the Lord, even though they may not have had the best role models in, in their home. Then he says, we've rejected the covenant. And so he brings back that understanding from Deuteronomy 28. Look, what happened is not something that should have taken us by surprise. It's all listed. And I gave you the cross-reference. You, you can see it in Deuteronomy 28, 29. So he says, let's reinstitute this covenant. Let's walk in obedience to what God has called us to do. So if you go to verse uh, 15, 
When they assembled their brothers and consecrated themselves, they went in to purify the temple of the Lord as the king had ordered, following the word of the Lord. The priests went into the sanctuary of the Lord to purify it. They brought out to the courtyard of the Lord's temple everything unclean that they had found in the temple of the Lord. The Levites took it and carried it out to the Kidron Valley. They began the consecration on the first day of the first month, and by the eighth day of the month, they reached the portico of the Lord. For eight, eight more days, they consecrated the temple of the Lord itself, finishing on the 16th day of the first month. Now think about that. Imagine Grace's sanctuary, this whole area, being so filthy, being so filled with things that were ungodly. <laughs> it took a couple of weeks just to clear it out. And so they're just making sure that this is now God's temple, God's house, and it's just the way it should have been, all right? Verse 18, then they went in to King Hezekiah and reported, we have purified the entire temple of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, the table for setting out the consecrated bread with all of its articles. We've prepared and consecrated all the articles that King Ahaz removed in his unfaithfulness while he was king. They're now in front of the Lord's altar. Early the next morning, King Hezekiah gathered the city officials together and went up to the temple of the Lord. They brought seven bulls, seven rams, seven male lambs, and seven male goats as a sin offering for the kingdom. So we have done wrong. We should die, but these animals will die in our stead. That's the, the sin offering idea. Uh, for the sanctuary and for Judah. The king commanded the priests, the descendants of Aaron, to offer these on the altar of the Lord. So they slaughtered the bulls. The priests took the blood and sprinkled it on the altar. Next, they slaughtered the rams and sprinkled the, their blood on the altar. Then they slaughtered the lambs and sprinkled their blood on the altar. The goats for the sin offering were brought before the king in assembly, and they laid their hands on them. They would have, if you read about all the rituals, they would have a scapegoat where they would, the high priest would lay his hands on the, the goat's head and, and confess the sins of the nation, and then they would send that scapegoat out into the wilderness. Now be gone, right? You, you're carrying our sin away from us. Again, this ritual pointing out that eventually someone, Messiah, is going to die and take away our sin because this, all this stuff had to be done uh, on a perpetual basis. Uh, the, uh, verse 24, The priests then slaughtered the goats and presented their blood on the altar for a sin offering to atone for all Israel because the king had ordered the burnt offering and the sin offering for all Israel. The burnt offering was an offering that was meant to show total dedication. So sin offering, this is what I've done. I violated the covenant. This is the atonement for it. This animal's dying in my stead. Burnt offering, total consecration. Lord, I, just like this animal is now given to you, I, I am, am all in for you. Verse 25, he stationed the Levites in the temple of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres in the way prescribed by David and Gad, the king's seer, and Nathan, the prophet. This was commanded by the Lord through his prophets. So the Levites stood ready with David's instruments and the priests with their trumpets. Hezekiah gave the order to sacrifice the burnt offerings on the altar. As the offerings began, singing to the Lord began also, accompanied by the trumpets and the instruments of David, king of Israel. The whole assembly bowed in worship while the singers sang and the trumpeters played. All this continued with the sacrifice of the burnt, until the sacrifice of the burnt offering was complete. When the offering was finished, the king and everyone present with him knelt down and worshipped. King Hezekiah and his officials ordered the Levites to praise the Lord with the words of David and of Asaph the seer. So they sang praises with gladness and bowed their heads and worshipped. 
When you read Psalms, you're reading the hymn book of Israel, and so David writes quite a bit of Psalms, and so, hey, we're, we're using the, the Israelite hymn book, and we're singing praises to the Lord besides the sacrifices. Verse 20, uh, 31, Then Hezekiah said, You have now dedicated yourselves to the Lord. Come and bring sacrifices and thank offerings to the temple of the Lord. So the assembly brought sacrifices and thank offerings, and all whose hearts were willing brought burnt offerings. So now that other category, the thank offering, it's just this voluntary act of worship. Uh, Lord, thank you. <laughs> You've been merciful to us. You've given us all this, and so just want to thank you for that. So verse 32, the number of the burnt offerings the assembly brought was 70 bulls, 100 rams, and 200 male lambs, all of them for burnt offerings to the Lord. The animals consecrated as sacrifices amounted to 600 bulls and 3,000 sheep and goats. The priests, however, were too few to skin all the, the burnt offerings. So their kinsmen, the Levites, helped them until the task was finished and until other priests had been consecrated for the Levites had been more conscientious in consecrating themselves than the priests had been. So to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron's line. He's part of the tribe of Levi, and then all the rest of the Levites, you're, you're serving in the temple uh, as a worker. Verse 35, there were burnt offerings in abundance together with the fat of the fellowship offerings and the drink offerings that accompanied the burnt offerings. So the service of the temple of the Lord was reestablished. Hezekiah and all the people rejoiced at what God had brought about for his people because it was done so quickly. Again, imagine that. Our church is shut down. It's just full of filth and garbage. and It's cleaned out, and then we get back to worshiping and, and doing what God has commanded, right? Let's take a break here. We'll stretch. We'll, we'll uh, uh, take a two-minute break. Again, our application questions in the lower right hand. Uh, is there a sin there? Is there a warning? Is there an encouragement? Is there an example? Is there a promise? Is there a command? Right? We'll pick up in chapter 30 in two minutes. And we are back. All right? So we're going to pick up in 2 Chronicles 30, and Hezekiah is going to celebrate the Passover. Uh, What's unique about the Passover is this celebration of what God had done in taking Israel out of Egypt. So if you remember in the plagues, you've got these ten plagues in Egypt, and in the last one, the plague uh, on the firstborn. And so unless you've got the blood painted on the doorpost, the destroyer is going to come in and, and, and take that firstborn. So here's this blood covering the doorpost, and so now the, the, you're, you're safe. So the, the destroyer passes over. So that commemoration is one of three festivals that all Israel was told, when you've settled here and you've got your own territory and land, three times a year you all come back to Jerusalem, and we're going to remember these milestones in God's history of deliverance of the people of Israel it's also going to be part of, of a harvest festival that Lord has provided food as well as deliverance. And so Passover is, is one of the highlights, if you can imagine uh, uh, Fourth of July, right? So our birth as a nation, well, this is their birth as a nation. Hey, this is where we became our own people. So Hezekiah celebrates the Passover. We're in 30 verse 1. Hezekiah sent word to all Israel and Judah and also wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh, inviting them to come to the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. The king and his officials and the whole assembly in Jerusalem decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month. They had not been able to celebrate it at the regular time. That would have been in the first month because 
not enough priests had consecrated themselves and the people had not assembled in Jerusalem. The plan seemed right both to the king and the whole assembly. They decided to send a proclamation throughout Israel from Dan to Beersheba. In other words, from, from north to south, even to these people who are no longer uh, uh, all uh, Israel because they've been carted off by the Assyrians. So there's still some people that are, are living there. Uh, calling the people to come in, to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover of, of the Lord, the God of Israel. It had not been celebrated in large numbers according to what was written. And I've got it on the outline there, Deuteronomy 16, 16. You're all supposed to come and celebrate three festivals, and we'll talk about that in a minute. At the king's command, couriers went throughout Judah and, or Israel and Judah with letters from the king and from his officials, which read, People of Israel, return to the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he may return to you who are left and have escaped from the hand of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and brothers who are unfaithful to the Lord, the God of their fathers, so that he made them an object of horror, as you see. Do not be stiff-necked as your fathers were. Submit to the Lord. Come to the sanctuary which he has consecrated forever. Serve the Lord your God so that his fierce anger will turn away from you. If you return to the Lord, then your brothers and your children will be shown compassion by their captors and will come back to this land, for the Lord your God is gracious and compassionate. He'll not turn his face from you if you return to him. So this is covenant language. This is that conditional covenant language. If we're walking in God's ways, he's going to be merciful. So let's do this, all right? Let's celebrate our Independence Day of Passover. If you take a look at the outline there, Hezekiah's obedience in Passover, so Judah, obviously the nation he's ruling, the two southern tribes are being invited, but remnants from Israel get this message. And that's why from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, everybody hears about this. It happens in the second month. Why? It should have been in the first, but again, they were cleaning out the temple and they just weren't ready to do it. And then it happens in Jerusalem, and you can see on the outline there, there were three festivals that everyone was supposed to attend, all right? So Passover would be in our March or April, all right? They call their months by different names, right? And we're not going to deal with that now. We can look that up later if you're interested. So our March, April is when they would come there, right? Then they'd come for the Festival of Weeks. You can see that on the outline there. That's in June or July. And, and it's also known as Pentecost. So when you read in Acts 2, hey, everybody was there for Pentecost, all right? Oh, yeah, <laughs> because they were supposed to be there, right? And, and it's kind of a, a, a celebration of the first fruits of the harvest. Hey, the, we're starting to see these things grow, and now you could even harvest some of this stuff now in June, July. So, hey, thank you, Lord, right? And then the Feast of Tabernacles, that's in fall, September, October, all right? And that's a harvest festival, uh, obviously, at that time of the year. But also to remember tabernacles. When our ancestors were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, they lived in tents. So what we do is we make little tents and we hang out here in Israel we, we or in Jerusalem to commemorate that. So we commemorate the Lord delivering us at Passover in, in spring. And then we come for first fruits of the harvest in summer, June, July. And then in fall we come... And we remember that, um, that we've had this great harvest and we used to be wandering around. But now we've got a whole land, we've got homes, God's been good. So he says, hey, everybody, let's come and do this, right? So those couriers go out, verse 10. The couriers went from town to town in Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but the people scorned and ridiculed them. 
As I read that, it reminded me of 2 Peter chapter 2. The Lord says, you've got to understand, when you talk about end times, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. Where is the second coming he's promised? Everything continues just like it has in the days of our fathers. And so you've got to understand, Paul in Acts 17, he goes to Athens and he shares the truth and some people mock and ridicule, but others, like here, boy, could you tell us more? It's just going to come with the territory. When you share the truth, there's some people, ah, really? Okay, you're a Jesus freak. Okay, yeah, whatever. If it works for you, great. But others, they've never heard this. So just understand, this is just what goes with the territory. Verse 11, nevertheless, some men of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun humbled themselves and went to Jerusalem. You're not responsible for other people's beliefs, unbelief, actions, feelings. You're responsible for following the Lord. I can't control anybody. I walk in the Spirit, and that's what God calls me to do. And so you be faithful, you follow the Lord, and and again, you can't control how people are going to react, but some people listen. Good news, verse 12. Also, in Judah, the hand of God was on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered, following the word of the Lord. It takes one person, it takes one person, Hezekiah, is my dad godly? No, but I'm going to do this because this is God's covenant with us. He saved us, so we're going to walk in his ways. And let's clean the temple out. Let's do the Passover. Let's remember Independence Day. And people, yeah, let's do this, right? Again, word of the Lord changing these people's hearts. Verse 13, a very large crowd of people assembled in Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread in the second month. So Passover is one day, then Feast of Unleavened Bread is right after that for a week. So uh, you're celebrating pretty much all at the same time. They removed the altars in Jerusalem that his dad had set up and cleared away the incense altars and threw them into the Kidron Valley. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. It should have been on the first first month. The priests and the Levites were ashamed and consecrated themselves and brought burnt offerings to the temple of the Lord. Then they took up their regular positions as prescribed in the the law of Moses, the man of God. The priests sprinkled the blood handed to them by the Levites. Since many in the crowd had not consecrated themselves, the Levites had to kill the Passover lambs for all those who were not ceremonial clean and could not consecrate their lambs to the Lord. Although most of the people, most of the many people who came from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, and Zebulun had not purified themselves, yet they ate the Passover contrary to what was written. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, May the Lord who's good pardon everyone who sets his heart on seeking God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even if he's not clean according to the rules of the sanctuary. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. That's a great section. Did, did they do it by the book? No. But we're here and we're, we're now we're right in the ship and we're getting in the right direction. Lord, forgive them, even though we're not doing it exactly by the book. What's incredible about the Passover, if you go back in Exodus 12, it tells you what to do. On the 10th day of the month, you were to pick out your lamb. And you kept it as a pet for four days. Supposed to be perfect, spotless, without blemish. And then four days later, then you kill it, okay? So you pick it out on the 10th day of the month, and then you kill it on the 14th. So so that's why it's saying, on the 14th day of the second month, it should have been on the first month, They did this, right? And so these people brought their Passover lambs. Verse 21, The Israelites who were present in Jerusalem celebrated the Feast of Unleavened Bread 
for seven days with great rejoicing, while the Levites and priests sang to the Lord every day, accompanied by the Lord's instruments of praise. Feast of unleavened bread, what's that? So remember, the Lord tells them, now at this Passover meal, you're going to have bread without yeast. And you're going to, because this bread you're going to eat in haste, because you're going to have to pack up and go as soon as Pharaoh says, okay, get out of here, right? And so you're always going to remember that. And so you're going to have this feast of unleavened bread, and you clear all this stuff out, right? All the leaven gets cleared out. When Paul writes in the New Testament, he talks about sin as leaven and clear out the leaven, right? And, and, our, and Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So it's this neat imagery that continues on in the New, in the New Testament. Now look at uh, 22. Hezekiah spoke encouragingly to all the Levites who showed good understanding in the, uh, of the service of the Lord. For the seven days they ate and, assigned, uh, their, and their assigned portion and, off, and offered fellowship offerings and praised the Lord, the God of their fathers. The whole assembly then agreed to celebrate this festival seven more days. So for another seven days, they celebrated joyfully. Think about that. Would you like to extend 4th of July? Sure, let's go to 5th of July. <laughs> but let's make it a week-long celebration beyond the week that we have. So it's really cool. They're, they're, they're doing this for two weeks. Hezekiah, king of Judah, provided 1,000 bulls and 7,000 sheep and goats for the assembly, and the officials provided them with 1,000 bulls and 10,000 sheep and goats. A great number of priests consecrated themselves. The entire assembly of Judah rejoiced, along with the priests and Levites and all who had assembled from Israel, including the aliens who had come from Israel and those who lived in Judah. There was great joy in Jerusalem, for since the days of Solomon, king of David, King, uh, son, son of David, king of Israel, there had been nothing like this in Jerusalem. The priests and the Levites stood to bless the people, and God heard them, for their prayer reached heaven, his holy dwelling place. Man, that's a lot of food. Man, that's a lot of animals. Well, they're there for two weeks. <laughs> You've got a throng of people, all right? So what are we doing? We're taking this food, and we're sacrificing it, and then we've got it for the Levites, but there's food plenty for people there, too. 31. If you flip, uh, we're going we're gonna to skip over this. You can take a look at the outline there, bottom of the front side of the page. The priests uh, worked in 24 shifts or divisions, and they did offerings, they did sacrifice, they praised the Lord, right? Uh, again, you can, you, you can see the offerings that were, were given uh, and, and uh, his, his command, you've got to take care of these people. They're working here so they don't have a job out there they're working in the temples you got to take care of them so that's that's what's going on uh in in chapter 31 now if you flip the uh, outline over go to the back side let's take a look at chapter 32 so on a spiritual level uh the obedience of hezekiah is incredible right my dad is not a role model but this is what we're supposed to do so let's do it right clean the temple out do the passover get everybody back on board now, on a political side, you can see he's obedient but also makes mistakes. Again, there's no perfect person in the Bible. So now you're in chapter 32. Sennacherib threatens Jerusalem. After all Hezekiah had so faithfully done, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came and invaded Judah. He laid siege to the fortified cities, thinking to conquer them for himself. When Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib had come and that he intended to make war on Jerusalem, he consulted with his officials and military staff about blocking off the water from the springs outside the city, and they helped him. A large force of men assembled, and they blocked all the springs and the stream that flowed through the land. Why should the kings of Assyria come and find plenty of water, they said. 
Then he worked hard repairing all the broken sections of the wall and building towers uh, and building towers on it. He built another wall outside of that one and reinforced the supporting terraces of the city of David. He also made large numbers of weapons and shields. He appointed military officers over the people and assembled them before him in the square of the city gate and encouraged them with these words, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the king of Assyria and the vast army with him. For there's a greater power with, with us than with him. With him is only the arm of flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people gained confidence from what Hezekiah, king of Judah, said. I love this because he's almost quoting my confirmation verse, Joshua 1.9. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged, right? So Joshua 1.9, that's what Joshua is telling the people. And so, uh, or what God tells to Joshua. And so here it's that same kind of message, even though uh, Sennacherib's come against them. Now look at 9. Later, when Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and all his forces were laying siege to Lachish, he sent his officers to Jerusalem with this message for Hezekiah, king of Judah, and for all the people of Judah who were there. This is what Sennacherib, king of Assyria, says. And what are you basing your confidence that you remain in Jerusalem under siege? When Hezekiah says, the Lord our God will save us from the hand of the king of Assyria, he's misleading you to let you die of hunger and thirst. Did not Hezekiah himself remove this God's high places and altars, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you, you must worship before one altar and burn sacrifices on it? Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the peoples of the other lands? Were the gods of those nations ever able to deliver their land from my hand? Who of all the gods of these nations that my fathers destroyed has been able to save his people from me? How then can your God deliver you from my hand? Now don't let Hezekiah deceive you and mislead you like this. Do not believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom has able, been able to deliver his people from my hand or the hand of my fathers. Much less will your god deliver you from my hand. If you take a look on the outline there, you've got a siege then that has been started by Sennacherib and he wants them to lose confidence we talked about spiritual warfare before, all right? Here's an example of spiritual warfare, all right? Demonic message spoken through this king. Really? God's going to help you? <laughs> no one can stop me. No, none of these other gods. Your God's going to stop me? And so to shake their confidence and faith, that's why the message is there. Now look at 16. Sennacherib's officers spoke further against the Lord God and put his servant, uh, and against his servant Hezekiah. The king also wrote letters insulting the Lord, the God of Israel, and saying this against him, just as the gods of the people of the other lands did not rescue their people from my hand, so the God of Hezekiah will not rescue his people from my hand. Then they called out in Hebrew to the people of Jerusalem who were on the wall to terrify them and make them afraid in order to capture the city. They spoke about the God of Jerusalem as they did about the gods of the other peoples of the world, the work of men's hands. Your God is just like all the other gods. Your God's not alive. You're not going to win. So now they're speaking in Hebrew so everybody can hear and hoping to shake their faith. Now watch this, 20. King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, cried out in prayer to heaven about this. And the Lord sent an angel who annihilated all the fighting men and the leaders and officers in the camp of the Assyrian king. So he withdrew to his own land in disgrace. 
And when he went into the temple of his God, some of his own sons cut him down with the sword. Hmm. Take a look on the outline there. Number five, the siege of Jerusalem, and again, a spiritual attack. Your God is just like all the others. He's going to be wiped out, right? If you look in Assyrian records of Sennacherib, so you can find this information outside the Bible, right, in, in the Assyrian records. He said about Hezekiah, quote, Hezekiah was like a bird in a cage. I put watch posts around and turned back anyone who went out of the city gate. So Sennacherib recorded this. Hey, I laid siege to Jerusalem. Hey, Sennacherib, did you ever take Jerusalem? Hey, I laid siege to Jerusalem. Hey, Sennacherib, did you ever get into the city? Did you ever take it? Hey, I laid siege to Jerusalem. <laughs> no, he didn't, right? And so he's eventually killed by his own uh, uh, kids when he goes back, or by his own people when he, when he gets back, all right? Look at verse 22. So the Lord saved Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, king of Assyria, and from the hand of all others. He took care of them on every side. Many brought offerings to Jerusalem for the Lord and valuable gifts for Hezekiah, king of Judah. From then on, he was highly regarded by all the nations. Now, uh, in verses 20 and 23 there, all right, you can read his prayer. I gave you the cross-reference to 2 Kings 19. And then you can see Isaiah's prophecy in 2 Kings 19 as well. On the outline there, what took those guys out? Well, if you read in, in, in 2 Kings 19, 185,000 of their soldiers are wiped out. And it says by, it's by an angel, all right? What's fascinating is the Egyptian historian Herodotus, and so he's supposed to be the father of recorded history, right? So Herodotus says this. He records that when Sennacherib went to take uh, Jerusalem, there was an invasion of field mice. And that's fascinating. So did God use, with, with this angel that wipes out these, these 185,000 soldiers, also an invasion of field mice? Was there disease? Was there other problems? Who knows, right? So uh, it's just an interesting historical record, again, that corroborates. Was uh, Sennacherib attacking Jerusalem? Yes. Did he get wiped out? Yes. All right? He did not take the city. So it works out well. They turn to the Lord. Lord, you've got to help us. You can read Isaiah's prophecy and the actual prayer that Hezekiah had. But then here's a problem that Hezekiah had, an act of disobedience. Look at verse 24. In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. He prayed to the Lord who answered him and gave him a miraculous sign. Uh, I, I, you can uh, read about this in, in 2 Kings 20, all right? Um, he's told that he's going to die. Get your house in order. And he prays, Lord, please heal me, all right? So God sends a message back to that prophet and says, go tell him that he's going to be healed, all right? Well, what's the sign that I'm going to be healed? And the sign is the shadow that normally travels this direction in, in your, your, your palace is going to go the opposite way, all right? So you're going to see this supernatural kind of shadow uh, movement. Oh, all right, and that's going to be a sign that you're going to be healed, all right? So you can read about that in 2 Kings 20. Verse 25, But Hezekiah's heart was proud, and he did not respond to the kindness showed him. Therefore the Lord's wrath was on him and on Judah in Jerusalem. Then Hezekiah repented of the pride of his heart, 
as did the people of Jerusalem. Therefore, the Lord's wrath did not come upon them during the days of Hezekiah. A little foreshadowing to next week. Josiah will be the last godly king in the southern kingdom. And because they've had 12 evil kings and they have violated the covenant, what happened to Israel was going to happen to Judah. And that's going to happen in 586 B.C. But now it's not going to be the Assyrians, it's going to be the Babylonians. And so it's kind of a foreshadowing there. But did God's wrath come during Hezekiah's days? Nope. comes about 100 years later. Verse 27, Hezekiah had very great riches and honor, and he made treasuries for his silver and gold and for his precious stones, spices, shields, and all kinds of valuables. He also made buildings to store the harvests of grain, new wine, and oil, and he made stalls for various kinds of cattle and pens for the flocks. He built villages and acquired great numbers of flocks and herds, for God had given him very great riches. Again, blessings, Deuteronomy 28. It was Hezekiah who blocked the upper outlet of the Gihon Spring and channeled the water down to the west side of the city of David. He succeeded in everything he undertook. Now watch this. But when, he, but when envoys were sent by the rulers of Babylon to ask him about the miraculous sign that had occurred in the land, God left him to test him to, and to know everything that was in his heart. The other events of Hezekiah's reign and his acts of devotion are written in the vision of the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos, in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Hezekiah rested with his fathers and was buried on the hill where the tombs of David's descendants are. All Judah and the people of Jerusalem honored him when he died, and Manasseh, his son, succeeded him as king. We're going to look at Manasseh next week with, with Josiah. That's Josiah's grandfather. It's just mentioned, um, I gave you the cross-reference at the bottom there, 2 Kings 20, 12 to 19, when the envoys from Babylon said, hey, we heard about a supernatural healing here. We're just curious. So Hezekiah tells them about it, and the envoys are like, what else have you got here? And Hezekiah goes, well, look. He shows them everything. He shows them everything. And when the envoys leave, a prophet comes and goes, what have you done? Well, I was just showing them all the stuff I got. And in so many words, the prophet said, you idiot. Those Babylonians are going to come. And they're going to want what you have. And Hezekiah goes, but not in my day. Oof. Not in my day. Hezekiah's Great example of obedience, right? Great example of obedience. But he shouldn't have done that. And, and you're going to see the hammer's going to fall by the Babylonians because of Judah's disobedience, right? And that's our last study next week. Just a point about the kingdoms of the left and the right hand. So as the Lord has blessed us with these two hands and, and we can do so many things, as a, as, a, as a Christian, we live in this kingdom of the right and the left hand, all right? So we're part of the church, the Christian church on earth, but we're also part of a, a government, a state here, state of Wisconsin, the, the uh, uh, land of America. The ideas of these kingdoms is this. The left-hand kingdom, the government, its focus is here in time and space. God's kingdom has this eternal focus, right? The, the, the eternal states of heaven and hell after judgment day. The power of the government or the state is, is simply man's authority, right? And so is there a prescribed 
order of how your government should go. No, I can't find a verse that says it should be an oligarchy, it should be a monarchy, it should be a, a theocracy. You, you, you can't find that, right? But God's power is at work in the church. God, the Holy Spirit, creating faith in us. We talk about word and sacrament. And when it comes to involvement in the government, you, you don't have any option. You've got to pay taxes, all right? If there's a draft, you've got to go, all right? But you don't have to belong to the Christian church. It's optional, all right? This involvement you can find in Scripture, right? And so let's go to 1 Peter 2. Just three things to take a look at here. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2. God calls us as members of the left-hand kingdom, the kingdom of the state, to be obedient. And whether we agree with the elected official or the policy, the idea of being obedient unless we're being told to go against God's will. Uh, that's an exception. First, uh, First Peter 2, 13 to 17 is an example of this. So Peter writes about uh, our, our uh, duty as a, as a citizen in this left-handed kingdom. So now you're going to First Timothy uh, chapter 2. So now Paul's writing to this uh, uh, young church leader, Timothy, and he writes in 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. That's a great passage. So we pray for elected officials. We pray for people in authority, like Pastor Clatt. Why? So we can live in godliness and holiness, all right? Live a peaceful and quiet life. Lord, bless these people. Give them wisdom. Help them to have God-pleasing decisions and, and decisions that benefit and bless us, right? And then finally, Jeremiah 29, verse 7. The idea of being involved and trying to work for the good of the society so as you turn to Jeremiah 29, 7, I think we've looked at this before, but if we haven't, here's the context. The kingdom of Judah, as I've hinted at, is going to be carried off by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. So they're going to be there for 70 years. They violated the covenant, and so they're going to be there for 70 years, and then they're going to come back. And God says to the Israelites, while you're here in Babylon, this is what I want you to do. Jeremiah 29, 7. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. It's a great passage. We're, we're, we're part of two kingdoms. I, I, in the right-hand kingdom, I share God's word. But in the left-hand kingdom, I'm, I'm obedient. I pray for those in authority, and I seek the good of society. Why? If it prospers, you too will prosper. What's cool about Hezekiah is, what is he doing? He's working mostly what we saw in that right hand, but in that left hand, hey, we're going to make sure we're protected. We're going to prepare. We're going to understand. And God is the one they call on. Look, Sennacherib's bearing down on us, but God is going to deliver us. And he did in a supernatural way. Let's pray, and then we'll wrap up with Josiah next week. Lord, we thank you for this time and the lessons you teach us through this study. Lord, I thank you that our Passover lamb, Jesus, has been sacrificed, and that through him we have access to you. Lord, I pray a blessing on this evening, an evening of rest, and then another day to serve you tomorrow. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll see you next week.